Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL in Concord. We are very pleased to have today, uh, really thrilled to have on our show, John Jennings. John is sort of like the Forrest Gump of American politics and government. He's just simply been everywhere. He was an assistant attorney general, as well as a White House fellow who coordinated policy and the president's initiative on race under President Bill Clinton. Then he helped to run a national nonprofit. Then he got a master's degree from Harvard. Then he ran for Congress in one of the most contested districts in America known to political insiders as Indiana's bloody eighth district. He ran the state operation for Senator John Kerry. He's been a developer in private business. And today he's the city manager of Portland, Maine, which is probably why it's the only New England city in the top 25 on US News and World Reports rankings of the best cities to live in America. John is someone who can speak to how to have a real impact politics and government at every level. So I'm very happy for our listeners to get to hear from him. But not all. I have an ulterior motive here. I said that John has done everything, and I wasn't kidding. What I skipped over in his bio a moment ago is that after getting his start under the legendary Bobby Knight and his famous Indiana Hoosiers basketball team, John worked his way up to being a scout, an assistant coach, and the director of basketball development for the Boston Celtics. We had an inside view and an inside role during the glory days of the Celtics, including the 1986 which many basketball experts consider the greatest single team ever assembled. So this show is listed on iTunes as a politics and culture show. And today we're going to live up to that. We're going to talk politics and basketball with John Jennings. John, welcome off the record. Oh, Matt, thank you so much. And, and Paul, thank you for, uh, for having me. We're really thrilled, um, and I, uh, I'll, I'll just jump right in. Let's, let's start on the government side with your non-basketball-related career, um, and I promise that we will uh, round out and talk hoops in the second half of the show. Um, now, you've been in prominent roles in the private, the not-for-profit, and the government sectors, and you've been involved, as your bio readout uh, kind of impressively shows, at every level of government. Where do you think one can have the biggest impact? And maybe I'd contrast being an acting attorney, assistant attorney general with managing a prominent American city with 1,400 employees and a $200 million budget. Where can you do the most? You know, Matt, I used to think um, that, and it was, it was an incredible honor to be able to walk through the gates uh, to go to work in the White House. Uh, I mean, every single day it was history being made, you know, you're really able to do incredible things. Um, but the part that was missing was that real world experience of meeting with people who, what you were working on was going to have an impact on their lives. So this most recent experience that I've had in government, uh, being the city manager in Portland, uh, Maine, um, I think has been the most exciting, but also the most challenging. And what I mean by the most challenging is, is because you are the first line of government. Uh, you are the person who people want to complain to if their trash isn't being picked up or the streets aren't being swept or, you know, there, uh, the snow hasn't been cleared on it in a timely way, which again is, can be difficult at times, but the, but the other side of it is because you're able to do things that directly impact someone's life, I think is the reason why I got into government in the first place 
And the reason why I love uh, being involved in municipal government. It, it, it sounds, um, it, it sounds uh, very, it's a good answer for me, John, because I've just finished running for the state Senate after serving as a member of Congress. And while I didn't get, uh, get the job, um, it's certainly one of the reasons that I was after it was so that I could have an even more direct impact on people's lives at a more local level. I think there's a lot to be said for what happens um, on the ground. Close, cl the closer to the people you get, the more immediate the impact seems to be. But your your government career has unfolded across a a truly fascinating time in American politics, and in many ways, um, you have been uh, on the front lines at front and center as we have transitioned to a time of uh, toxic tribalism, for lack of a better, better word. The partisanship uh, has been ramped up. Uh, and it, uh, it, it, many people say it started when, um, not because you were in the White House, but you were in the White House, as Newt Gingrich, um, you know, brought on partisan battles in the, uh, and then the 90s, the partisan battles were heating up. You ran for Congress in a, in a significantly contested district when Republicans were pushing a device, divisive wedge issues like uh, the Defense of Marriage Act. And then you ran Senator Kerry's state operations right after he was the Democratic presidential uh, nominee, leading Dems on issues like the war in Iraq uh, that ended up turning the partisan tide in 2006 with the new major Democratic majority in uh, the House of Representatives. Um, is from, from your vantage point and given your experience and everything you've seen, are, are we, is our perception correct? Is the environment getting as increasingly toxic as it seems? And if so, how has the partisan uh, environment impacted what you're doing um, on the level of municipal government, right down to where the people want their snow, their snow plowed on time? Um, is, is the toxic tribalism infecting that level of government? Yeah, you know, Paul, I, I hate to, to say this because when, when young people come and meet with me and, or, or want to talk about their futures, I always make a pitch for government. And I know in my heart that we can be better than what we are. Um, but the insidious nature of extreme partisanship has perme permeated every level of government at this point. You know, even running a, a city of 66,000 people Unfortunately, as a appointed person, uh, sometimes I am the uh, person that the extremes want to go after um, because I don't agree with them on 100% of what they want uh, out of government. Um, because I have to balance a city uh, that's represented of people from very different spectrums, very different backgrounds, and the this idea that we have in our country right now that we have to align ourselves 100 percent 
with one particular political philosophy. And there is simply no way to have a conversation with anyone who disagrees with you. Um, and they are automatically bad people, I think is really, really troubling. Um, I do think that we can find our way out of this horrible time uh, that we're living through, but it's going to take the vast majority of the people in the middle um, pushing back on the extremes. And, uh, and I really do believe that that's possible. You know, one of the things that I think we've learned in the last six months and really the last four years, now I've, you know, you just made a, a beautiful pitch for uh, understanding across partisan lines. I'm gonna make a very partisan comment here, but one of the things that we've learned is just how much competence matters. Um, people being serious professionals in government, people who actually respect government um, doing these jobs. And, um, you know, in the 20 or so years I've known you, one thing that really marks your career is that you are highly professional. Um, so I wanted to ask about the thing that we've all been struggling with the last six months, um, and you've been on the front lines for, is, is how do you keep businesses going and fund the government and keep the public safe during a pandemic? So you've been trying to achieve that kind of balance uh, in Portland for the last six months um, and have that you have that direct responsibility. What lessons learned have you had um, about keeping a, a good balance of those things? Are there, are there any takeaways um, that you could share for, for other cities or other states? Yeah, Matt, I, I think I'd like to go back to the previous summer, actually, uh, to answer your question. You know, again, we have a $206 million budget, or we had, actually. I had advocated reduction in that budget. So because I believe property taxes can be too high, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. So we actually reduced our budget by about 4 million, uh, the city council did. But the summer, last summer, we began to see a lot of people and families coming from the southern border um, through Mexico uh, to come to Portland, Maine. And we saw this, initially it was a trickle, and then it was hundreds. And so last summer opened my eyes to the fact that whatever is happening outside of the confines of Portland, Maine is going to have an impact on us. And ultimately what we had was we had over 400 people come uh, to Portland, putting enormous pressure on the social services and everything else. But we were as city staff, we were able to open um, a shelter. We were able to get a lot of people housed. Um, and a, a, a vibrant group of people came to the city of Portland, uh, mostly from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and, and so forth. But at that time, I was thinking, boy, the immigration policies in this country are so radically broken that little Portland, Maine, we have no control over any of that. But we're the recipient of, of what happens when the federal government doesn't do its job. So fast forward to March. You know, we're all paying close attention to what's going on with, uh, with the coronavirus. And then all of a sudden on March 13th, I get a phone call that our first employee uh, or an employee had tested positive for the first time. And that's when you have to spring into action. You have to do things that you've never done before. Like I, you know, I, 
I don't think I'm completely hated by the Irish because um, I am Irish <laughs> in Portland, but I had to shut down um, St. Patrick's Day, which is a big deal uh, here in, the, in New England. Um, but literally to control the potential spread of COVID-19, we literally shut down uh, St. Patrick's Day. And then the following week, we started to shut down the city. Um, these are unprecedented times for, for city government to have to deal with things that, in fact, in history, the, um, the, the people that really know the history of Portland, they've never seen city government have to do some of the things that we've had to do uh, during the course of this pandemic. Um, so there's this massive impact on a, on a seaside town that is certainly one of the top cities for tourism and so forth, and it all came to a screeching halt, which, of course, as we all know, has a, a dramatic impact on revenues, then that gets into the economics of, of running a city, um, and of course, all the businesses um, that are trying to make it through. So I think the biggest lessons that I've learned is, while it's fine to pay attention, and you have to, you have to pay, pay attention to the core services of municipal government, trash collection, all of those kind of things. But you better also have your eye on the ball of the national issues because they will come to your doorstep and you really do need to be prepared to be able to address some of the things, particularly in this environment that we're living in where no one will work with one another um, uh, for, the, for the greater good. Well, on that happy note, uh, I think we'll take a break. Uh, this is Off the Record with Matt and Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced right here in Concord, New Hampshire by WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We're talking with John Jennings, a man with an extraordinary career from the White House to basketball to running the city government in Portland, Maine. Just a fascinating career. We'll take a short break and we will be back after this word from the folks who keep us on the air. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLA and an FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. My co-host Matt Robeson writes for the alternate and has a blog at a moreperfectunionforum.com where he dives deep into politics. And we are talking with somebody who knows a lot about politics at every level, from from the White House to the docks of Portland, Maine. John Jennings is our guest, and we've been talking about, well, lots of things, including how you manage a city in the face of a global pandemic. So I want to just move our focus a little bit, John, because there are so many different, different things I want to talk to you about. Um, the Attorney General and the Department of Justice have been in the news a lot recently and depending on which news you watch you're either going to love them or hate them 
the Democrats uh, are feeling particularly unhappy about the attorney general who seems to um, think that he is the private attorney for the president as opposed to uh, the attorney general for the United States. But you have some experience in, in all that department. There's um, still C-SPAN footage online uh, available if for anybody who's curious of you testifying in the House. And uh, there you're talking about turning over thousands of pages of documents from a Democratic executive branch agency to a Republican House committee led by a notoriously partisan chairman, Dan Burton, uh, who led the investigation into Vince Foster's suicide um, back in the Clinton era. Uh, and and that, that investigation was one of the original far-right, crazy Republican conspiracy theories way before QAnon, way before Benghazi, way before Biden and U Ukraine. I mean, it was, it was the mother of all crazy Republican investigations, at least in the modern era. So uh, now we may have come some way from uh, that kind of um, uh, professionalism, respect for congressional oversight and separation of powers in your DOJ days to what we're seeing in the DOJ today under Barr. What, what is your perspective? And are you worried to see what the DOJ is doing these days? And what about, what's your perspective on the way congressional investigative uh, investigations are being handled? Uh, are the Democrats doing the same things the Republicans did? Um, if so, why not? Yeah, you know, Paul, it's, it's interesting as I think back on my time at the Department of Justice, I was uh, acting assistant attorney general for legislative affairs. So that position has the lead responsibility on Capitol Hill. And I was there um, from actually just after President Clinton was acquitted by the, uh, by the Senate. Uh, actually, my first day was the day before the Columbine shooting. Um, and, and then uh, Ellen Gonzalez, the, um, mm -hmm. the uh, Microsoft civil suit, uh, Wen Ho Lee, a, a Chinese espionage case, a whole host of other things that uh, you know, I was obviously dealing with on Capitol Hill. You know, it was a partisan time um, because we had just come out of the impeachment process and the, and the trial. But I will say um, that Janet Reno, Ms. Reno, the, the attorney general that I worked for, uh, was always, and I mean always insistent, that we were nonpartisan, that we did not allow politics to cloud anything that we did and we were an island in the administration where um, we took the objectivity of the Department of Justice, and I'll repeat that, the Department of Justice, very, very seriously. What we are seeing today is, the word disgrace doesn't even begin to capture um, what is happening at the Department of Justice because of the current attorney general. The, the idea that the United States of America is going to take on a case that has been brought against the president on a personal level uh, that the 
the DOJ is going to defend the president in something as tawdry as what that case is about is outrageous. Um, and then, of course, all of the other things that have happened where the, you know, I remember having a lot of conversations about the U.S. Attorney, uh, U.S. Attorney's offices, and that was also sacrosanct. I mean, you certainly, the Deputy Attorney General and the Attorney General would would be could be involved in in the individual um, offices, but to have an Attorney General and all of the people around that Attorney General insert themselves in a way that is just crass pol politics is frightening uh, for our country, and that really has got to that that has got to end. We and whoever. You know, I'm supporting Vice President Biden. Um, I actually have, uh, I've known him for my time at the Justice Department. Um, he was on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I've always been a great admirer of his because he is a person who can work and talk with people all across the political spectrum and try to find common ground. So my hope is, is that the Vice President is elected and that, um, and that, frankly, we can clean up the mess that has been created over the last uh, almost four years. You know, Matt, just before we launch into another Please. topic, I, I want to reflect on, on something that John's comments um, have raised for me. Uh, because I don't know that uh, folks appreciate just how critical an independent Department of Justice um, and independent uh, and independent U.S. attorneys are um, the administration of justice in this country has depended on um, the nonpartisan nature of those uh, of those kinds of departments, and when they have strayed, and they have they have strayed uh, before our time, but probably not quite as badly. Um, uh, the effects are profound. Just by way of example, I, uh, when I uh, came to New Hampshire many, many years ago to begin my career, I was an assistant uh, attorney general in the New Hampshire attorney general's office. I was hired by a Republican, and now I'm a devout Democrat. I was hired by a Republican, a guy named David Souter, who went on to become a Supreme Court justice. He was the most impressive legal mind I had ever met, the, the, a person whose integrity was unquestioned and who, was, who had cre helped create an attorney general's office for the state of New Hampshire where partisanship had no place. Politics had no place and that was drummed into us. We stayed out of politics and when I stood up in courtrooms to prosecute people and said, I'm st I represent the people of the state of New Hampshire, I meant it, and I, uh, I, there was just no question about the independence of that office. We did not work for the governor. We worked for the people. And that is what is absolutely necessary to get back to in our country. It's, it's one of the cornerstones of our democracy. I couldn't agree more. I know John agrees as well. And you know, I'm, I'm a little fearful here of putting uh, our listeners through um, a little bit of mental whiplash. Um, but I, I am champing at the bit here to start throwing questions at John 
about basketball. So at the risk of changing <laughs> gears uh, in a grinding fashion, um, I'm going to do this. And just, just to let John's, uh, uh, let, to let him change mental lanes, I, I'll just share. I, I first got to know John 20 years ago in, in grad school. And at the time, you know, when I discovered his background as a, as a coach with the, with the Celtics, I said to him, you know, you know, John, I, I'm a recreational basketball player. I love playing basketball. My problem is I'm a power forward stuck in a point guard's body. Anything you can do to help me out? And he, you know, I, I, he said, no. I was, I, was a little, I was a little crestfallen. And he said, well, actually, actually, Matt, wait a second. Uh, I think I've got a videotape of Kevin McHale teaching low post moves. Would that help? And of course, the reaction is, yes, that would help. Are you kidding me? The greatest low post player in NBA history teaching me how to do that. That would be swell. So I'd like to turn to this segment by picking a little bone with you for not ever uh, producing said videotape. But you can make up for it now by telling our listeners a little bit about the experience of being involved with the Celtics in the glory days. Uh, let's, let's, I don't know, let's start off at the top. I mean, what was it like working for Red Auerbach? And, and maybe could I, could I prevail on you to tell our listeners, if I'm remembering it right, the Hawaii Five-O story? So, so Matt, um, part of coaching is, is not trying to raise expectations for a player too high. That's why you never got the, ah. the video. Um, I love you like a like family, but you didn't have a future. Okay, so on the basketball court, but I'll get it for you if you want to come out of retirement. So um, my knees won't won't appreciate that. So it's all right. You're forgiven. So you know I am 23 years of age. Uh, I had worked for Bob Knight at Indiana University. I'm the uh, I've come from um, my, a single mom. Uh, we we were pretty poor growing up. I'm the first person in my family to actually graduate high school and go to college. And so, you know, I, I go to work, uh, or I go to college at Indiana University, and my, my sophomore year, I start working for this iconic human being, Bob Knight, who was easily could have been governor of the state of Indiana um, at that time. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm so fortunate that I'm learning from Coach Knight. And I actually kept a small notepad in the back of my shorts and wrote notes down all the time. So, you know, I, I go to work for the Indiana Pacers. Um, I, actually, it was part of what I did for Coach Knight was the videotape side of things. And so I bring that to the Boston Celtics. Now, when I was a kid, uh, my favorite player, my hero in basketball was John Havlicek. You know, we were, we were very poor, and I had a white – I distinctly remember this. I had a white T-shirt that in green pen, I wrote Celtics and 17 on it. Uh, and, and that's what I played in almost every day that I played. So you can imagine what it was like for this young kid coming to work for the Boston Celtics um, – and this guy who actually had a statue in Boston before John Kennedy had a statue, Red Auerbach. So one of my first days in the office, I hear someone screaming at the top of their lungs. Um, and I have no idea what's going on. And finally, someone comes running down and says, 
that's Mr. Auerbach. He wants to see you. And so I walked out in the hallway. I go into his office. The first time I'm meeting Red Auerbach, who, by the way, became like a grandfather to me, actually came to Indiana to campaign for me when I ran for Congress. And other than my mom has had the greatest impact on my life. But this is the first time I'm meeting this, this unbelievable heroic figure in basketball. He's got a cigar. He's got ashes all over his shirt. And he says to me, he says, hey, are you that kid uh, that videotapes things? And I said, yes, sir. I, I videotape basketball games and cut them up. And I'm trying to impress him with this, not, this videotape knowledge. And he says to me, he says, well, you better start taping episodes of Hawaii Five-O where your ass is grass and I'm the lawnmower. And that, that was my that was my introduction to uh, to Red. And I tell you, I I absolutely hate the smell of cigars, but I miss so much sitting in a room with him, breathing in his cigar smoke, and listening to sheer brilliance. Well, folks, you heard it here. This is off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL. We're talking with John Jennings and covering politics. And now we are on to one of our favorite topics, Celtics basketball history, because John Jennings was there with all the legends. We're gonna take a short break and we are gonna be back to plumb the depths of John's memory about other Celtics greats. For all you basketball fans out there, don't go away. We'll right back. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and we are having a really wonderful time with John Jennings, whose career spans politics at every level of government. He's worked as, uh, in the law, in government, at the White House. He's worked now as the Portland main city manager. But in the early days of his halcyon career, John was a basketball guy, and not just any basketball guy, but he began his career under the legendary Bobby Knight in Indiana and went on to work for Red Auerbach at our beloved Boston Celtics back in the day when I really cared about basketball. So, John, I noticed that uh, the word is out, and it's out all over New England, that you're coaching again in your spare time and you're mentoring young people. Uh, and, and that's always been a big deal in your career. Now, the Celtics were famous for working as a team. Uh, they had amazing passing. They had incredible internal leadership. They were very hardworking. And by the way, there's a saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it seems like that applies in business. And 
certainly it applies in political campaigns too. So coming to understand winning culture um, is very valuable in every walk of life as your extraordinary career proves. So, so help us understand why did the Celtics have such a winning culture? And if you were trying to create a winning culture in another organization, like you did with the Red Claws years later, are, are there things you take away from the Celtics experience that, that make that happen? And just to add a fourth or fifth question, did you, how did your Celtics experience influence your political life? Well, uh, Paul, you, I mean, you really bring up um, kind of this nexus that I've uh, that I've always thought about, and I've, I've I've talked with people about this nexus between what I did in professional sports and what I did in government. Um, it really all starts with uh, I'm just talking about the Celtics at this point with Red Auerbach. Red um, was a very demanding person. He his goal was perfection but he settled for excellence uh, because we all know perfection is not attainable. And so the, and that is the, um, what he held all of us to, uh, you know, red could be tough. In fact, my first year, year and a half with red, he was pretty tough on me and, and he was trying to test me as I look back on it now and other people have, talk with me about those those early days I mean he was really trying to test me as to whether I had the ability and the fortitude and everything to be able to deal with him but also life and I so I think for, for Red taught me one of the things he one of the lessons life lessons that has really permeated throughout my entire career and I really use it in city government here in Portland is that when you have a team, whether it's 1400 city employees or you have, you know, a basketball team of 12, not everyone is going to respond to the same way of coaching. So he used to tell me the story about um, Bill Russell uh, was very sensitive. Bill was not a player that you could scream at and, and get through to him. And Koozie was, Bob was very similar in that way that he really was not someone who responded at, at screaming or hollering or, you know, that type of stuff. But Tommy Heinsohn was. And so what he would do, and it's just genius of the way he worked in dealing with people, he would get on Tommy pretty aggressively and go after him. But the message was being sent to, to Bill, to Bob, and to the rest of the team. And that way, their way, that way he could get the best out of everyone without diminishing someone's confidence or, or you name it. Um, and, and, and so not treating everyone the same is critical uh, when you're leading people. And I find that I've have found that in every aspect of my career. You know, when I went to the White House, there were some people, I was a White House fellow, so it wasn't as if I had worked on the campaign or any of those things. And a lot, most actually no one knew me of me other than I was some basketball guy. So there were some people who diminished me in their eyes because I was some basketball guy. I was a jock. I was, you know, 
not up to the intellectual rigor that was the White House. Then there are others who, you know, took the time to get to know me. And then, so it's this constant way of working with people, dealing with people, figuring out how best to get the best out of people, which is what I really learned from Red. And that is what really starts with, I think, your people, your team, is by far the most important asset, whether it's a business, whether it's a government agency or city hall, or certainly a professional sports team. So here's an easy one for you. What's your best Larry Bird story? And I mean one you can share publicly. And if, if, you can't, oh, yeah. if you've got something juicy that you just can't share, please feel free to interpret my question liberally. Pick someone else from the Pantheon Bobby Knight, Kevin McHale, Danny Ainge, dealer's choice. But if, if you've got a bird, I'd love to hear it. Well, I, I have to say, um, so Larry and I are both from Indiana. Uh, you know, I come to work for the Celtics. And he starts calling me hillbilly. Now, I, I, I'm actually from a part of Indiana, which is more metropolitan. <laughs> And it was the irony of all ironies for, for Larry to be calling me a hillbilly, which is where he, the part of Indiana where he came from. But we really hit it off as people. In fact, I used to go over to his house in Brookline. Um, the, uh, you know, the, uh, um, he would mow his own grass and it was a small house. And so, um, but I think for me, uh, the some of the practical jokes that we, we used to play on each other um which is kind of it happens all the time i think that those are the memories that i i have um that i remember the most but larry one year one summer we actually lost in the finals and so he tells me he's going to go home to french lick and he's going to work on his game and he's going to lose weight and he's going to do this and he's going to do that so he comes back to Boston, and I hadn't seen him all summer. And he has dramatically slimmed down. I mean, to the point where he was almost unrecognizable. Um, so I said, I said, Larry, how, how the hell did you do this? He said, all I did was eat popcorn and drink beer all summer and work out. <laughs> so I said, Larry, I, I'm not sure that's the healthiest diet in the world, but... Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, he dropped all this weight. Unfortunately, he got actually, he got hurt that, that year with Achilles. But, um, but no, that's, that was birdie. I, I swear, you know, it's like what well, Paul was mentioning with Justice Souter. Um, you know, when you're, when you're around talent, and particularly talent at that level, um, I remember when I worked at the White House, Elena Kagan was the um, deputy domestic policy advisor for the president. And so I was in a lot of meetings with her, and actually we became friendly. And I was always so amazed and stunned in some ways by her intellect. She is one of the top three most brilliant people I've ever met in my entire life. And she, of course, is now Justice Kagan on the Supreme Court. But then you take someone like Bird, and then I had the great honor of coaching Michael Jordan in the NBA All-Star Game in 1991 in Charlotte, and then later became friends with him. It was 
what was amazing is to be in their presence and to really understand what that level of talent requires, the dedication, but also just the intellectual side of that level of talent, that greatness um, requires. And so I think that those are, <laughs> when I think of Larry and certainly Robert and, and Kevin um, and DJ, Dennis, uh, who I miss desperately still, mm -hmm. Um, I think those guys and Danny, of course, uh, those guys were all birdie was at, at a different level, but they were all really great in, in what they did. Hmm. So there've been a lot of changes in basketball in the last 10 years, uh, post up play gone away, disappearing post up play a lot more pace and space, all the three pointers, the, the big booming shots from way back, big emphasis on uh, switching on defense, rangy wing players. You think the game has gotten more interesting? Is it more fun oh, to watch? Absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> so um, do you think, you think it's time we go back to the halcyon days of the late 70s and 80s? Like, uh, you know, scrappy, scrappy play and, and, and just, you know, three pointers is kind of like the oddball out event. Well, you know, what's, unfortunately what's happened, and it's happened in baseball and I'm sure it's happening in football, is you have the statistical analysis that has taken over everything. And that means that, so statistically, you get more out of a made three than, of course, you get out of a, a two. The problem is that it has decimated team basketball. And, and so our strategy I still have playbooks from back when we used to, uh, when I used to coach, is our strategy was almost always to go inside to Mikhail, to Robert, post up Larry. Actually, we used to even post up DJ. Um, and make the defense react to that and therefore moving the basketball to get the open shot. Now today, you know, the teams just come down and they fire shots from all over the place and it's just up and down up and down i think that there is the lost art of the low post player which honestly when i the guys that i used to coach against patrick ewing and and kareem and you know kareem uh, i know matt used to say that kevin was the greatest low post player i actually think that kareem was the greatest low post mm. player i think kevin was second kareem was unstoppable i mean you could try to double him and it was, frankly, it was irrelevant. You could try to double him in the post because he was so good. And I think that that is what is really missing. And it's sad to see seven footers shooting freeze all the time now because coaches and general managers and others are so infatuated with this three-point shot. Um, and I would love, love to see uh, the NBA kind of go back to that team offense um, that uh, I think was the hallmark of the greatest period of basketball in the 80s and the 90s. So speaking of sad topics. Hey, by the way, Matt, before you go, we have two minutes. So oh, good. All right. So this is the lightning round for John. Um, so speaking of sad topics, uh, our, our beloved Celtics now down 3-1. We're not making news here uh, since uh, the show airs on Friday. Um, now, look, we've seen in this playoffs that coming back from 3-1 is entirely possible if you're the Denver Nuggets. 
Um, but what do you think is, can they turn it around? Um, that's a little, that, that's, a, that's a little easier. Um, and do you, how would you do it? If you, were, if you were back coaching now, if you were in Brad Stevens' ear, is there anything they can do coming out in the next game to get themselves back on track and pull it out in seven? In one minute. Okay. I think, I think the, the Celtic, I'm still a huge Celtics fan, of course. Um, so I'm always, always rooting for the Celtics. I think that they played um, the last game on their heels. And I really think that they've got – and they've got the most aggressive play. I love some of their players. Mm. And if they just really go after them, I think that they can really um, – but it's got to be intense. And it's got to be for 48 minutes. It can, you cannot take a playoff. And I think that the, the way – because of the players that the Celtics have, they can get the job done. But it's going to take all of them with such intensity um, – that um, I think that they could win it. Now, obviously, Miami's a very good team, and uh, and Butler is phenomenal. So, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. This has been off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson with our terrific guest John Jennings talking politics and baseball. John, thanks so much Basketball. for joining us. We'll be back after this short message to wrap up. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. Matt Robeson, we got to talk. We got to jam on your favorite topic, basketball, because I know that you are an extraordinary athlete and a great basketball player. I'm surprised that the Celtics never drafted you. You spent your life in politics. Oh, woe is me. You know, I have to say... I like your player evaluation better than John's, but uh, he's more likely to be right. There you go. Folks, it's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with more exciting stuff for you next week. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to all you folks for listening. See you next week, folks. <laughs>